this is Jordan Beal. Welcome to the Rock of Grace podcast from our Kinsman campus. We are passionate about leading people to follow Jesus together, and we're so glad that you're opening the Word of God with us today. I pray God speaks to your heart. Amen. On a live and well this evening on a Monday night here in Northeast Ohio. We came off a of Browns victory yesterday. Amen. More excitingly, the Steelers got destroyed, so I'm just not going to lie. I was a little extra happy. Uh, and then we had church last night, and it was incredible. God's presence just showed up in a profound way and ministered to people. People's lives were touched and changed. How many of you were here last night? Amen. All right, amen. Look at you doubling up. Love it. Definitely going to heaven. Amen. <laughs> so, listen, I, uh, I have a few ground rules that I just like to uh, tell you before I get into God's Word. Uh, and it really, what it does is it helps you uh, go home before midnight. And I just, I, I just feel like if I don't say it, uh, and you don't just naturally uh, follow suit with what I want, uh, we'll just be here all night. Because uh, if there's anything I am good at, it is the ability to talk and ramble about all sorts of nonsense. And some of it will make sense, and a lot of it won't, but I'll keep doing it. And it's really hard to walk out of a church when people are talking on a microphone. So... Um, just FYI. So how you get out of here earlier uh, is you amen in the parts of the sermon that you feel like are good. Amen. amen. And if they're not good, you lie to me. Um, thank you. And I just tell people that because I have self-confidence issues and I need to feel better about myself. So amen. No, just kidding tonight, but seriously, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share with you. Uh, I've had the honor of leading the Warren campus for uh, just under, I think actually we just hit 20 months going strong. Amen. Uh, a little bit of breaking news with our Warren campus. Uh, many of you know, and I, I want to say thank you, because uh, I know there was an offering taken here as well as at our Warren location for it. But we are the proud owners of a 2005 food truck. Amen. Now, listen, I, what I have been telling people, is, especially when they tour uh, the food truck in its current state, uh, I tell them to see it for what it can be rather than what it currently is, uh, because right now she's a hot mess. But, amen, so some of you've seen it, clearly. But uh, with a little uh, TLC and some love in there, uh, we're going to make sure it sparkles. Uh, and it helps us as we go out into the community uh, every month and feed people. We feed about 150 to 200 people a month out of the Warren campus. Um, and it's just been a great ministry for us. We've been able to pray with people, uh, share the gospel with people. And so I just want to say thank you to the Kinsman location as well as the Warren uh, campus for uh, contributing into that fund because now we're going to be able to go in and take over entire neighborhoods, feed them, love on them, pray with them, bring them the gospel, uh, and fill up their stomachs in the process. So thank you guys so much. I want to share a word with you tonight, um, and it's a little a bit of an interesting word. It's a brand new message that I just that God's just kind of been downloading into my spirit for a little while now, and I finally was like, okay, God, what is this for? I know it's for me, but is this something that I'm supposed to just kind of file for myself, or is this something that I'm supposed to kind of 
cultivate into a message for, the, for God's people if that opportunity were ever arise. And he's just kind of been downloading it into me and helping me refine it over the course of several weeks and months now. And it's, I, I, so I was praying into, God, what do you want me to share at this conference night? Um, and he's like, the things that I've been speaking into you about, that's what I want you to share to God's people. And so I'm excited to share this with you. I do have a prop tonight. Uh, Pastor Jordan had a candle and a flame last night, and so I could not be outdone. Um, and so I had a whole pyrotechnics thing uh, in the works, but I couldn't remember if there was a sprinkler system here. And uh, the last thing I wanted to do was be the guy that had the sprinklers go off because trying to make that feel like a spiritual moment is very difficult. And so uh, I pivoted that. But uh, and, uh, So I, I brought a sword uh, out to you tonight. Now, there's a percentage of you, especially those that attend the Warren location, that are a little nervous right now. Um, amen. Because uh, I'm, uh, if you don't know me, I am very clumsy. And if I can hurt myself with this item, I will. And if I can hurt you with it, if you were to get perhaps close enough, I would probably also hurt you with it. Not intentionally, but just things happen in my life. I was putting curtains up today, and I was trying to, I had a drill out, and I was trying to screw uh, screw into this curtain rod, and uh, I made the mistake of doing it towards me. <laughs> the, the drill slipped off the screw, got wound up in my hoodie, and pierced uh, my belly button. So... <laughs> Now there's a little charm hanging, okay? It's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, it was, it's awful. Just, just crosses and hearts all the way down. Amen? So, yeah. Anywho, uh, so it's interesting because this, this uh, beautiful thing, which is uh, also the property, or it says champion of honor, uh, Gary C. Hooper. I'm not sure who that is. Okay, amen. Is that you? I, okay. <laughs> I don't come to Kinsman much because, you know, Sundays are kind of booked. But um, so every uh, established church has what I call the cantata closet. And uh, if you don't know what a cantata is, it's a Christmas and Easter production where somebody always plays Jesus. And I've always been a disciple in them. And uh, here is no different. Uh, I knew there would be a closet here with uh, old uh, bed sheets that were turned into costumes for the holidays. Amen and candles and a manger scene somewhere, as well as a Last Supper scene. And in there, I found a whole bunch of swords. It was really cool off afternoon. And so uh, <laughs> there's a lot of playtime happening. Nonetheless, um, this thing is beautiful on its face, uh, but it's also a weapon of destruction. It's interesting because what you're looking at currently is the final product of something, Right? When this was made, it did not originally look like this. I'm so thankful it's not sharp because there wouldn't be a hand on me right now. Uh, but it, it's the finished product of what was at its outset a hunk of metal that was kind of undefinable, unrefined, and it required the skillful workmanship of a blacksmith, if you will, to kind of at first, see what this can be, and then have the ability, the wherewithal, the stamina, the strength to turn it into something useful, right? Because nobody pulled it out of the ground looking like this. This is the combination of several pieces of metal that got hammered together, it got forged in fire, it got pounded out some more, it got molded and made at its final moments it got sharpened and 
it got handed into the hands of a warrior who would then take it to battle. That's the purpose of the sword, right? It's the byproduct of the labor and investment of the blacksmith whose skill created the opportunity for it to become something. So we only see the outcome of the investment, and we at times don't fully appreciate the workmanship that was required to bring something into the earth. Does that make sense tonight? So I want to get into our conversation. I was told I have an hour 45. Um, <laughs> amen. Pentecostal church. Every, half the room's like, yeah, that's, that's normal here. The other half's like, oh, I got shows coming on at nine. I don't know what shows there are at nine, but I got to get home, right? But I want to talk to you for the next little while about the need for more blacksmiths. The need for more blacksmiths. Now listen, before I get into the main part of our conversation in the main text, I want to preface a couple thoughts to you and just kind of let you in on the idea that the things I'm going to say in the next few sentences are and will always be the overarching concept of where this message comes from. Because I want you to understand that God is the master blacksmith. He takes the unrefined, the impure, the undefined lump of metal, us, and through fire, hammering, molding, twisting, quenching, which is the rapid cooling of something in water to harden it, and the final sharpening of it, uh, through our surrendered lives, makes us into something useful in his hands, right? Something purposeful, something meaningful, something effective, something necessary. However, so I want you to keep in the forefront of your mind that that is the overarching idea, that God is our master blacksmith. We are the thing that he is forming and fashioning. However, that will not be the main crux of what I want to talk to you about. See, as I tell you tonight that there is a need in the earth for more blacksmiths, I'm not necessarily referring to God himself, but I'm helping us understand that we are the blacksmiths that God needs to raise up. See, it does not rest on the shoulders of God, but rather rests on us and our desire to invest in the lives of one another. You're next to somebody tonight, right? Whether you wanted to be or not, you sat next to somebody or in an inconvenient way, they sat next to you. But in social awareness says we can't move now because people will think that we don't want to be around somebody else. So now you're stuck, right? Amen. Some of you are getting it. You're smelling what I'm stepping in. Here we go. Amen. Amen. See, there is a need in the earth for more blacksmiths, and that is you, right? It does not rest on the shoulders of God, because here's what I believe tonight as I've been kind of praying into this for the last several months. I believe that God is raising up a generation that isn't cute. Come on. Amen. That isn't polished. That isn't manicured. It's probably a little dirty. It's a little rough around the edges. See, listen, I believe that as God is raising up in these last hours of time, the pastor, the preacher, the teacher, the evangelist, the prophet and the apostle, the poet, the artist, the creative, I think there is another element that God is raising up in these last days that is more vital than those things. I believe the Lord is wanting to raise up a, 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 the person of the blacksmith who will look around at others and see the unrefined, the undefined, the lump of metal that currently 
or, and, and rather cast them aside and rather look at them and say, there's nothing of use in that person and kind of write them off. I believe that God is raising up people who will look at others and say, you know what? There's still something left in them. All they need is a little refinement and I can turn them into something useful for my glory. That's what I believe the Lord is wanting to raise up. And it comes through the body of Christ and it comes through you and for me. Does that make sense tonight? Rather than cast people aside, we need to look for the thing that is hidden in them and help bring it to the surface. There is something locked in the side of each and every single one of us that is so valuable, is so treasurable, so necessary, so needed in the earth. Yeah, but the problem is, is that it's unrefined, undefined, and it doesn't look like it if you just casually glance at it. It takes the person who will look a little bit deeper past the junk, past the sin, past the mess ups, the, the situations, the circumstances, past the issues, past the rough around the edges type of individual and say, you know what? There's something greater on the inside of you and I want to play a part in hammering that out so that we can see everything that God sees about you. Amen. Maybe I'm uh, getting a little bit ahead of myself tonight. I have a tendency to do that. Uh, I am uh, uh, self, well, not self-diagnosed. I am diagnosed. Uh, <laughs> I'm also self-diagnosed. Uh, I have a little bit of the ADHD. And what I mean by a little bit of that, I have a lot of it. Amen. Uh, you shine enough shiny things over there in that corner. I'll start preaching to that corner. This is shining off these lights. It's really, really cool. And so I have a tendency to get a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, and so I want to bring us back to a, the text that we're going to be operating from. I'm going to set this down before I do accidentally hurt myself. So if you have your Bibles tonight, you want to open up to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, in your favorite translation. No, goodness. I don't, thouest, dearest, loveth of all. No, that's the King James, amen, right? I'm going to read a good hearty chunk of this, and we're gonna, but we're going to make periodic stops, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 13, it says, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned uh, for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash in the, uh, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibba uh, of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Verse 3 says, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, uh, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, which really it was his son Jonathan, but Saul liked to take the credit, so Saul took the credit. And also that Israel had become a stench, no deodorant back then, to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Let me pause there for a second. Israel is coming off some pretty impressive military feats against their arch enemy, their arch nemesis, the Philistines. They just defeated uh, the garrison of the Philistines and they're pretty pumped about it. So much so that they blew the trumpet, they made a declaration and it rallied the people together. They are on a high right now, right? And we sometimes find ourselves at those high 
high valley moments where we feel like we're walking on sunshine and everything is kittens, puppy dogs, and rainbows. But the reality of a situation means that there is coming a time where we will not ever, we will not be able to stay up on this high, that there will be a leveling out that comes after the fact. And we have to be prepared for what comes next as we up, operate in the ups and downs, the hills, the valleys of our life. Amen. And that's where these people are at right now as we jump into verse 5. Now, the Philistines are not for lack of fighting men themselves. In fact, they have a bigger army than the Israelites do. Verse 5 says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in, uh, seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth, uh, Beth Haven. Verse 6 says, When the men of Israel saw that, saw that, they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. I find it interesting that although they have this military success, when they lay eyes on their adversary... They run away and hide like cowards, as if what they just experienced was not enough of a confidence boost. If you study the life uh, in the history of early Israel as God was bringing them out into the wilderness, as they were getting into the promised land, and as they were having these military uh, uh, kind of successes and even failures, what you would find is these were not what I would consider courageous fighting men. In fact, when you turn into the book of Judges, you find Gideon who is threshing wheat in the wine press because he has no self confidence. He tells the angel of the Lord when he appears, why would you even want me? I am the least of my tribe of Benjamin. And the Lord looks at him, the angel of the Lord that appeared to him said, be quiet, mighty man of God. God chooses to refer to Gideon in that moment as what he would become, not who he presently was. Can I tell you tonight that God doesn't look at you at who you presently are, but at what you have the capacity to become? Amen. And so all these fighting men and women, of, uh, not women, but men of Israel have all went and they've hidden because they've looked at their adversary and they've concluded in their mind, listen, this is too great for us. We probably should hide because there is an inevitable conflict coming. And once that conflict arises, we're probably going to get destroyed. And so many of them run and hide. In fact, some translations say that they escape to other places. They desert the army. Verse 8, this is Saul now. It says, he waited seven days. Now, Saul is the military leader and king of over Israel right now, and he is a little bit dumbfounded as what to do. And he rallies the remaining troops together, and he calls for Samuel to come. But Samuel has taken his time. Verse 8 says, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. Can you say, uh-oh? Amen. Saul, in this verse, in verse 9, feels the need to step into an area, into a realm that Saul has no business being a part of. Saul is not the prophet or mouthpiece of God. Saul is not permitted to offer sacrifice, but Saul is looking for an earthly or a natural solution to motivate his army when the solution needed was a spiritual one. 
Sometimes we look into the world for solutions and we have no business looking into the world for solutions because the thing that we desperately need is not another self-help book, another TED talk, another feel-good moment. What we need is to get into the Bible, the word of God, and get on our knees and begin to pray and not get up until we have the answer that we're looking for. But Saul is so enamored with the glory that comes through the victory that he knows if he can rally the troops together that they have at the very least a chance. And so they go. he goes and he offers the sacrifice and he commits one of the biggest blunders of his kingship in making the burnt sacrifice. See, Saul thought the people needed the energy that came from the ritual of sacrifice rather than the power of God that came from God because of the sacrifice. If I may uh, meddle for a few moments uh, into some of our uh, Americanized Westernization of what Christianity is supposed to look like. Can I tell you tonight that we, uh, especially as Pentecostal believers, and, and listen, I'm as Pentecostal as they come. Like if I could have rounded up some snakes tonight, I'd have brought them and we'd have handed them out. Okay. <laughs> I pastored in Kentucky for four years. That's a real, that's a real... <laughs> That's a real thing. Well, hey, you shall tread on serpents and they will not harm you. But listen, if you ever do go to a very, very uh, mountain uh, church or uh, southern uh, church, uh, they don't like you to actually bring your own snakes. Uh, they like to provide you the snake. There's a good chance because they've already devenomized that snake. So <laughs> on the off chance your faith is not where it needs to be and that sucker latches on, okay? Just pointing that out. So don't ever uh, bring your own uh, serpent to the church service. Anyways, can I tell you tonight that we are guilty of the same concept? See, we get addicted to the ritual of what we consider to be a good church service, a revival service. We want uh, the certain kind of music. We expect to see certain things. We want the goosebumps that make people feel like that's what the Holy Spirit is. We want that slain in the spirit moment. Listen, if you get slain in the spirit, A, please let it be the Lord, because if not, you're going to get a concussion. Uh, and B, if God does knock you down, you just have to eventually get back up. So if your back's not in that, don't fall down, okay? We want the tears in our eyes. And there's nothing wrong with these things. Let me preface it. Uh, we want prophetic words. And like I said, I love this stuff. I grew up in this stuff. I believe that this is how the Holy Spirit moves. But we get addicted to the... Uh, evidences of God rather than the person of God. If we don't check enough of our Pentecostal boxes, we leave feeling like we miss God. Like somehow we, don't, we didn't get our money's worth. Like God did us a disservice. Perhaps it plays in our head like this. God, don't you know it's Monday night? Not Sunday so clearly, I'm giving up extra hours to come to another church service. The least you could do is show up and do some cool stuff so when I leave, I don't feel like my night was wasted. Amen. I feel better already. 
The problem is, is that we get so addicted to the demonstration of being spirit-filled and spirit-led that we lose sight of what God, of who God is in the relationship he wants to do and have in and through us. I believe Mary understood this better than anybody when uh, Jesus was over for lunch. Chick-fil-A was being picked up. Martha was setting the table. And, or, yeah, and Mary was like, I'm just going to hang out here with Jesus. Right? The idea is that relationship trumps everything. Better than the band. And this is an incredible band. Incredible leadership. We have incredible leadership. We have a church that miracles and signs do happen in. There's a bunch of churches all throughout this region and the earth that they don't have those expressions. So don't take for granted what God does do. But don't get so enamored with what he does that you lose sight of why you came in the first place. You came for him. And can I tell you, if he doesn't do any of those things, he's still worthy of our worship. He's still worthy of praise. He's still worthy of your life. He's still deserving of glory. He's still worthy of honor. If he doesn't do anything but save you and and provide for you a way of escape from eternal damnation and hell, he's still God and he still deserves everything. Amen? See, Saul thought the mechanics of the sacrifice would calm the people and convince them that God was on their side and that everything was going to be okay. But Samuel, the prophet, finally shows up at the exact time that Saul is doing the sacrifice. Verses 11 through 13. So Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom uh, over Israel forever. Verse 14 is the gut puncher to Saul. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Verse 15 says, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Geba of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, in six, uh, about 600 men. Verse 16 says, And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shul. Another company turned towards Beth Horon. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam. I'm so happy towns are not named this anymore. Toward the wilderness. Now, this is where I, uh, actually pertains to the message. Verse 19 says that now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistine says, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines. Understand this. They had to go to their adversary for their weapon. 
to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Jumping back to verse 19, it says, In those days in the land there was no blacksmith to be found in all of the land of Israel. What an interesting thing. I want you to understand tonight that the blacksmith was vital to the military success of Israel. Because the blacksmith was the one who would work the metal with the fire and hammer it into the weapons that would then get passed into the hands of the fighting men that they would then take out to battle and that their adversaries would be slain with. And when you find yourself in a land that has no blacksmith, it's only a matter of time until you lose all of your weapons. And this is the current state of affairs for God's fighting men of Israel right now. There is no blacksmith to be found. In fact, the Philistines either enslaved them, captured them, or kicked them out of the city. No matter how you play it, Israel is at a current disadvantage. And they are fearful because their adversary has weapons that they do not have. Not only are they outnumbered, but they are outweaponed. They have no weapons. They have no tools. See, the blacksmith was vital because they were the ones who worked to hammer out the metal and fashion it into the weapon. They were the ones who were willing to get their hands dirty in the metal shop, working in the fire of the forge to produce instruments that could then be used for battle. Can I just say to us tonight that the reason we need more blacksmiths is because we need more weapons that can be used in battle against our adversary. Now, here's my personal belief as I've been kind of processing uh, the role that generationally we are to play in the kingdom of God. See, I believe, as I assess this generation to me, the blacksmiths are those who are willing to invest in a younger generation and form and fashion them into a weapon. A sharpened sword, an arrow, or spear that when used deals death blows to the enemy. Can I tell you tonight that I believe generational ministry is vital to the reemergence of the church in a modern day culture that is doing everything it can to get rid of God. We need people to invest in other people and out of that investment, they become sharp and in their sharpness, they deal death blows to a culture that is saying, kill babies on demand. You can be whatever you wanna be, just call it out. If you wanna be a cat today, meow, go lick the bowl and go crawl on all fours. We're living in a time of crazy behavior in people. Can I tell you that the only solution to that is the reemergence of God's powerful church. The only way we get back to the place of God's powerful church is those that have gone before us, invest in those that are on the up and coming and the up and comers begin to be the weapons that God intended them to be. And those that have already gone through some battles begin to form and fashion them. And out of that forming and fashion them, we deal death blows to an enemy and we change a culture and in changing a culture, we change the world. I want you to understand tonight that the process to become a blacksmith was long and tedious. It took decades to hone the craft. You had to be trained by a master blacksmith. Thank God tonight that we have a master blacksmith. His name is Jesus, and he is in the business of taking the unrefined, undefined things on the inside of us through a little heat, through a little struggle, through a little tension, through a little trial, through a little fire. He hones us into something useful that he can then take and attack the enemy with. 
It took forever. It took decades. Think about what you can invest in a younger generation that will help sharpen them to become weapons against a culture that is trying to destroy families, identity, faith, and everything else in between. I was a youth pastor for 15 years. I dealt with every single situation. Pastor Jason, Jacqueline, you know the same thing. You've been in the game for a long time. You've probably seen it all. The only way that we turn the tide here is if God would raise up some more blacksmiths and people would say yes to getting their hands dirty again and looking at what they can do to invest in a generation, pound out their rough edges, put up with their dirt, put up with their mess, and help form and fashion them with the work of the Holy Spirit into something that benefits the world for Jesus. How can we sharpen a generation to stand up against uh, and stand up and fight without blacksmiths who are willing to help form and fashion the iron? Listen, a multi-generational approach is God's intended design for victory. Ephesians teaches this concept. Ephesians 4.16 rather says this. It says that he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. There is no retirement in the kingdom of God. There is no, I've done my time, I'm, I'm good, I've invested it all. Guess what? If you're still breathing, he's still got something for you. Everybody a moment ago inhaled and exhaled. Guess what? Check your pulse, you're still alive. You were designed to more than just leave butt cheek prints in a seat somewhere. Yeah. Amen. When I grew up, they used to tell us to get off our blessed assurances and get into the game and get fighting. That's what they used to say. I grew up at Warren First Assembly. You don't like it? There's probably some people there that still say it. Call them up. <laughs> Tell them Dave Brock sent you. <laughs> dbrock at rockofgrace.org. Uh, don't mention my name, okay? <laughs> Listen, the reason the church is losing the cultural battle in the earth isn't because it doesn't pray enough. Although we can always be praying more. We can always be on our knees bombarding heaven with the prayers and petitions. But I believe the reason that the church is losing the cultural battle against the world and the enemy is because we don't have enough blacksmiths and people willing to be forged into useful weapons. My fear is the next generation. Hang on. I've made a mess here of my thing. There we go. My fear is that the next generation, is we, if we don't have enough people, Molding others into weapons. We won't have enough people willing to be those weapons. We need more blacksmiths. Let me give you a couple characteristics of them tonight. They were trained by fire. They're used to the heat. They were strong. They were rough and rugged. They were craftsmen who were meticulous about the details of their work. They were experts at their craft and full of wisdom. They had simple tools, a hammer and an anvil. They had great strength, the resolve to stand the heat and keep working. They had keen eyes to look at the, at the uh, flaming, glowing piece of metal and identify the, imper uh, the impurities in it. See, the blacksmiths of Scripture were crucial to the success of Israel's army, and that statement is true today. We need more blacksmiths who will work in the fire. See, the blacksmiths were the ones who knew how to work with the fire. Isaiah chapter 54. 
beginning in verse 16. I got to keep moving tonight. Verse 16 says, see, it is I who created the blacksmith who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. Let me tell you tonight, if you're going to work within the fire, if you're going to work with the fire, you have to be willing to be set on fire. You have to be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to burn up everything in you that does not belong there. That isn't of Jesus, that doesn't look like Jesus, that is fleshly, that is sinful, that is carnal. You have to be willing to let the fire refine you. Isaiah 48.10 says, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. Other translations say in the furnace of affliction. Can I tell you that walking through affliction is the ultimate test of your faith? Why? Because you find out who you really are. Because you don't find it out on the mountaintop. You find it in the valley low. It's in the trial, the testing, the stretching, the uncomfortable it's in the uneasy. It's in those moments that your faith is tested. It's in that bringing forth of the hand to throw in the towel that you get a sense of where am I at with God? I want you to know, I want to give you four things tonight that you can do with fire. I'm sure there's more. Uh, any pyromaniacs in here around 4th of July know you can blow a lot of stuff up with fire. It's pretty. We used to do a big fireworks um, night in my youth group. Um, I was, uh, I'm, uh, my philosophy in, in ministry is uh, it's easier for me to say sorry than ask for permission. Amen. And so that, that, uh, that's been my philosophy. It's gotten me through 15 years of this. Pastor, I probably didn't come up in the interview, but uh, that's, <laughs> but you know, uh, things, things. You know, nonetheless, um, so I uh, brought that philosophy into my previous church, and we, uh, every 4th of July or whatever Wednesday night led into that holiday, uh, I would take a group of interns um, that were spending the summer in our offices working with us, and we would go firework shopping. <laughs> yeah, amen, yeah, you're starting to put pieces together about what I'm about to tell you. And we would spend fortunes on uh, fireworks for things that uh, come from other countries that are basically paper, cardboard, and gunpowder with some uh, coloring mixed in, uh, which is essentially all that they are. Uh, they are ungodly expensive. And so we uh, used a hearty chunk of budget on that. Now, uh, I was younger back then, and uh, in my uh, naive lacking of wisdom, I failed to inquire of our office administrator uh, the necessary uh, requirements of insurance. <laughs> didn't even think about it, full disclosure. Didn't, didn't, we're going to have fire. It's going to be great. I also did not think to ask the insurance company, uh, what is the safest distance that I can put not only uh, parents and church people, but teenagers and minors uh, from this said fireworks display. Also, I did not mention uh, the, to ask. Um, I'm a campus pastor now, so we're good. <laughs> amen. Uh, well, amen. What happens in Warren stays in Warren. <laughs> Sunday's 1015. Um, nonetheless. <laughs> Uh, I also did not ask uh, if I was permitted to give uh, uh, minors uh, lighters to uh, assist me 
uh, in lighting this beautiful, magical fireworks display. Nonetheless, we proceeded with the night, and God love my last senior uh, lead pastor. He uh, did not know. Uh, I don't know how. He just didn't know or didn't want to ask. Either way, thank you, Pastor Paul. Uh, nonetheless, so we have this night, and I have, uh, it's, the actual distance is like several hundred feet minimum. I had people like 75 feet from the giant display that we were about to unleash on the earth. <laughs> and uh, not only that was the cheaper the firework, the more likely it is to current, uh, blow up in the container. <laughs> so we were balling on a budget. And so many of them blew up in the container. Uh, and uh, many also um, tipped over. <laughs> and rather than going up and pretty, they tipped over and went, ah, right? I kid you not. Uh, this is, this is uh, the grace of God was upon us uh, because one, when it tipped over, uh, there was a family who decided to stay after uh, the, the midweek service we had back then come out, but they stayed in their van and they're like, we'll just keep the side doors open. That was your mistake. The side doors, it's on them, right? That firework tipped over, and it was one of those, like, 64-shot fireworks, like the big car, the, the box one. That sucker tipped over as it was being lit, so it, it's not as if it tipped over at the end. Like, we're getting 64 shots coming out of it. Half of it went through their van, open side door through open side door. I don't know how it did not strike their children in the head. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen, Shundai, right? <laughs> See, I love fire. I like fireworks. Um, we do them at my house, and I, for some reason, have more parental wisdom. I've yet to let Silas light one off um, without me being out there. Amen. I don't know if it's a good idea because I'm wise or it's a good idea because he's only six and he will probably burn himself. But either way, it hasn't happened yet. But I want to give you four things tonight uh, that you uh, can do with fire. Right? Amen. The first of which is the fire can be stoked. Right? You can uh, actually, if you poke fire, what you're essentially doing, like you have the fire poker, you are agitating it. What you're doing through the agitation is you're getting that fire to burn hotter, higher, and brighter. The fire actually gets excited when it is stoked. Can I challenge you tonight to stoke the fires inside of you and to allow the Holy Spirit to poke at the cold members of your life and rekindle the fire in you, to reignite your passions for the things of God, the lost, the gifts of the Spirit, the ways of holiness, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just because, listen, just because you haven't received it yet doesn't mean you should give up on it. Keep seeking it, keep pressing in, and keep stoking the fire. Keep allowing the Holy Spirit to agitate your flesh, man. And in that agitation, let the conviction of the Holy Spirit come up in you. Listen, I will tell you tonight that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is actually the grace of God because the conviction is a pause in your life to help you become aware that there is something not right. There is something operating in you that is against God. And it's the grace of God that allows you through conviction of the Holy Spirit to deal with this thing down here before you have to deal with him up there. Conviction, different than condemnation, is the grace of God in your life. Condemnation will always drive you away from God. Conviction will bring you to the feet of God. 
That's how you can tell the two apart. If you're wanting to hide in your guilt and your shame and your sin and your struggle, you're probably operating under condemnation. But if you recognize through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit because he's been poking at you relentlessly, he's been agitating the fire on the inside of you, he's trying to rekindle something and make you aware that you need to allow your life to look a little bit more like Jesus. If you'll drive that conviction to the feet of Jesus, you'll lay that thing down, you'll burn hotter than you ever have before. Amen. Preaching tonight. TBN would charge you 40 bucks for this. Daystar would be 50. Just kidding. So you could stoke the fire. Guess what else you can do? You can add another log to the fire. See, adding the log to the fire ensures that the fire continues to burn. It gives the fire more things to consume. Remember, the Bible describes God as a consuming fire. See, I dare say that there are some of the fires in this room that are in danger of going out, of dying. That they have lost their bright glow that draws people to them. You ever think about how how appealing fire is to look at? It's almost kind of mesmerizing. It's in some ways beautiful. It draws people together. Anybody ever been to a bonfire? Yep. Making them s'mores, roasting those hot dogs, trying to make sure that they're cooked all the way because nobody wants that feeling at 4 a.m. I didn't tell you what feeling it was. That was your brain. It draws people together. And at times all throughout history, fire was a source of community. It was the source of heat. It was the source of morale. When you're cold and you're stranded and camping, I don't understand why people want to sleep in tents on floors uh, that God made called nature. Uh, my idea of camping is cabins uh, and beds that have air conditioning. Some would call them hotels uh, with continental breakfasts. But nonetheless, there, are a, there is a segment of the world that wants to camp. And if you've been out a long day fishing, hiking, kayaking, canoeing, or whatever it is that you're doing out in God's country, uh, what's the one thing you want to do when you get back? You want to get the fire going, right? You want to get dinner going and you're cooking over the fire if you're freezing and frigid because maybe you were out there longer or you got soaked because you don't know how to canoe because you fell in, right? Amen. Ask me about that after. Uh, You want to test your marriage? Uh, Go canoeing with your spouse. You'll find out real quick how unified you are. More so, you'll find out uh, who's likely to survive when everything hits the fan. And uh, just insider tip, it's not me. It was not me that day. It would warm you. It would feed you. It boosted your morale. Anytime the fall here hits in Ohio, everybody and their mama is having bonfires. You can smell them from your yard. Everybody's done that. You have conversations around them. You laugh, you reminisce. And as the fire is dying down, there is probably that one person who's like, I don't want to go home yet because this is an awesome moment. And what do they do? They say, hey, why don't we add another log to the fire? What are they saying? We want to live in this moment a little while longer. Our responsibility is to live in as long as possible in the presence of God. And the only way to do that is to keep the fire going. It's to keep adding logs to the fire. The 
third thing you can do with fire is you can fan the flames of the fire. What you're doing is by fanning the flame, you're adding more oxygen to it and you're allowing it to burn more intensely, to burn hotter, to grow bigger. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. See, Paul is speaking to his young protege, Timothy, about the impartation that is coming to Timothy through his laid on hands. Essentially, what Paul is saying is you better make something uh, of the gifts and the opportunity and the influence and power that has been given to you. Don't waste it. Don't let it pass you by. The days of thinking that, oh, somebody else will handle my assignment are over. Guess what? God has uniquely called you to do something in this world that only you can do. It's best you say yes to it now. Because the earth needs more expressions of the kingdom of God and less of the world. We are living in a generation where too many Christians have a casual outlook on the house of God, the things of God, the concern for the lost. So many churches has reduced their services down to 20 minutes of worship and a 15-minute feel-good TED talk that tickles the ears but produces no real heart change. Church is supposed to be a transformational equipping experience when when you come in one way, you leave differently. When you come in full of the world and full of sin and full of problems and situations and issues, you leave the other way looking more like Jesus, set free, delivered, joyful, healed, happy, and whole. Why? Because that is the person of God who we worship. But so much, we've gotten to the form and function of church and we've, re- we've reduced this thing down to a game plan that says, you know what, if we keep them here 20 minutes for worship and we don't sing too many songs and we, and we do it in a way that is, is reminiscent of, you know, of things that they already connect with in the world, guess what, the chances and statistics say they'll probably come back. That's a problem because we end up catering to people who sit in seats rather than the God who created the universe. We're called to live the in the audience, the eyes of the audience of one, not in the multitudes. We need the fire of God in our lives. We need to fan it into flame. We need to recognize that we all have gifts that are important and that need to be brought to the table, not just in the house of God, but also out in that community. I don't know if you know this or not, but the same gifts that you exercise in this room, guess what? They still work out there in the world. They don't just happen here at an altar. Although we're going to have an altar call later. It'd make me feel good if you came. <laughs> they don't just happen here. They don't just happen, uh, happen because Will played the song in B-flat and everybody knows that you can sing in B-flat and it's the pretty key of heaven. They don't just happen because Pastor Jordan said that one key phrase that made us feel good and everyone's like, yeah, that's God. We got to get to the altar. They happen out there in your workplaces. They happen at the grocery store line, at the restaurant. You can prophesy to the waitress. You can prophesy to the guy that's changing your oil and you can help move him into a transformational moment with God right there. Amen. We need the fire of God. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to raise up us to be the blacksmiths of the world and to teach others how to work in the fire. Because here's what I want you to understand tonight. If we're not careful, we will become so intellectual that we lose the spontaneity and beauty of flowing with the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, we will make a huge mistake. See, I want you to understand we got this, you can stoke the fire or poke at it. You can add another log to it. 
you can fan it into flames on the inside of you, but there is a third, or rather a fourth thing uh, that you can do, and that's that you can quench the fire. You can actually snuff it out and you can turn the heat down on it and in doing so you can extinguish the flame. Do you know that we have a, a generation or, or maybe not so much a generation, uh, but it seems to me as I assess the world, um, this is maybe me, hang on, there we go. It seems to me that based on what I see coming out of Hollywood and on TV, uh, in the movies, it seems like there is this overt curiosity for the supernatural. You know how many movies are coming out right now that deal into the demonic, into possession, into things that they have no business meddling with because they don't have, they're not equipped to deal with it when the thing actually takes hold. They don't realize that that junk is real. Get your Ouija boards out. Uh, you're moving it. No, you're moving it. Oh, it's a, no, it's not. It's a portal into, the, into hell where the demon will come and take over. I'm just telling the truth tonight. One of the things I had the honor of being a part of that blew my mind and was like, oh, opened my eyes to the reality is being on a deliverance team and watching people manifest oppressions in spirits and realizing, well, wow, that stuff is real and attaches to people. And it seems like we have a generation or a culture that, that is so overtly curious. Why not make them curious about the right thing? Why not show them the real power of God? Not this manufactured stuff. Not this Hollywood stuff. Why not show them that our God is Yahweh. He is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The word of God says that a thousand would fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, but it would never come near our dwelling place that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he is the creator and author of life, that he is the one uh, who hung the moon and stars, that he sits on the circle of the earth, that he is in control, that he still heals, he still delivers, he still sets free, that he still raises the dead, that all demons in hell scatter at his name, and that every knee will someday bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can we be the church that shows the world the power of God? Because if we don't, we're gonna quench the fire. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 19 says specifically, quench not the Holy Spirit. We are being admonished by the apostle Paul to not quench the Holy Spirit, to not extinguish the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit and fire. Amen. Matthew chapter three, verse 11. I always found this interesting because we talk as Pentecostal people about the Holy Spirit a lot, but do you understand that in Matthew chapter three, verse 11, it talks about the Holy Spirit and something else that follows it, the fire of God. It says this, it says, I baptize you with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But, in someone is, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I am not worthy to even uh, be his slave and carry his sandals. He con concludes this verse by saying, he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the holy, and I like to keep it old school, holy ghost, hey, and with fire. 
See, that phrase in the original Holy Ghost is actually broken down into two Greek words. The first word holy is agios, which means the most holy thing or saintly thing that is being offered. Ghost is the recognized word pneuma or spirit. So what we're getting when we get filled with the Holy Ghost is not just a thing from God. It's not just a good thing from God. It's literally saying that when we get filled with the Holy Ghost, that we are getting the most holy, most special thing that heaven can offer us. But see, there's an extension of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the fire. When studied out, now the Greek word is literally just translated as fire. But when studied out and applied to what Jesus' intentions were, it, you, you discover that what he is referring to is the anointing or the power of the Spirit. See, I will dare say that a lot of people have the Holy Spirit, but they aren't walking in the fire. They aren't walking in the power and the freedom and the authority and the dominion. Can I tell you tonight that we need the Holy Ghost in fire? I'm going to wrap this up for you tonight. Pastor Jordan, if you want to come. Uh, worship team, if you want to come. See, here's what we need to do. Let me get this weapon out of your way. See, we need to ask God to raise up more blacksmiths in the land to fashion a generation into weapons of usefulness to defeat an enemy who is raging war on a culture that is lost in darkness. We need more blacksmiths who know how to work in the fire and will teach others to work in the fire, who have, not been, uh, who have been consumed by the fire of God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. That word consuming, when applied, means to leave no trace. In a moment, I am going to open the altars. And I want you to understand something tonight is a night of assignment. It's a night of understanding your role and your responsibility. It's recognizing that there is far more to this than a good service, than some goosebumps, a few shundies and hallelujahs, when we then go home and do it again the next week. There is a world outside our doors. And for many of those people, they are on their way to hell. And all they need is to be introduced to Jesus. I was 10 years old when I was introduced to Jesus. Born First Assembly, Parkman Road. My parents were getting divorced. My siblings are nine years older than me. My sister got stuck babysitting. She had recently gotten saved and took her, because she was stuck babysitting, had to take her baby brother to church. And in that, say, that, that Wednesday night youth group, I found myself clueless about the things of God, clueless about what it all meant, other than that I had been to church before for some weddings. I knew what the Bible was. We had one at my house. But other than that, that was it. I found myself raising my hand to a pastor's question about wanting to give my heart to Jesus. And before I knew it, I found myself kneeling at an altar. If you were to take a field trip with me tonight, I could take you to that very place in that chapel where I knelt down. I was wearing khaki shorts and a Cleveland Browns t-shirt. I can take you to that spot where I gave my heart to Jesus. And I've never been the same since. 
We are living in a world where people are on their way to hell. People are dying, and what they need is not another program model or an encouraging 20-minute TED Talk. What they need is to get around the blacksmiths of a generation who are willing to work with them in the fire. I believe the reason we don't see more of the power of God on display in our churches and in our lives is because we don't have enough people who know how to work in the fire. There aren't enough blacksmiths in the land. Israel had no blacksmiths. And because of that, they were ill-equipped to handle their adversary. And rather than living and being postured in victory, they lived in fear, hiding in cliffs and rocks. They were deserting. What they failed to realize is that if they would have just stayed faithful, they would have operated in victory because there's not a battle that our God has ever lost. But they didn't have any blacksmiths in the land. And so they were ill-equipped for their adversary. And so what we've done is because we don't have enough blacksmiths in the land is that we've gone to the world for our solutions and answers, much like the Israelites did by having to go to the Philistines to get their weapons and their tools sharpened. And guess what? Just like it cost Israel more money than they had, it's costing us everything. We want the fire, we want the anointing, we want his presence and power. What do we need tonight? We need his fire. We need to allow him to make us into something. And out of that something he's making us into, we need to invest that into somebody else. And out of that investment, they then become something. And as they become something that pierces darkness, they then in turn invest it into somebody else. And before you know it, what we've done is we've raised up an army that no enemy would ever dare to attack. I want to invite you to stand to your feet tonight. Prayer team, I would like you to move in the front or wherever you're most comfortable on the sides. But here's the deal tonight. This is not a uh, maybe type of altar call. This is a for everybody altar call. This is an opportunity for you to come into agreement with the word of God and the presence of God that is in this room. It's somebody laying their hands on you and agreeing with you, speaking an encouraging word over you, loving on you, speaking into your destiny and your future through the prophetic. This is an opportunity for God to begin to mold you into something useful as the master blacksmith. And it's the opportunity for you to ask the Holy Spirit, make me a blacksmith that in turn I can do it for somebody else. Sharpen me, Jesus. Use me, Jesus. It's not over yet, Jesus. There's no white flag in our hand. There's no towel to be thrown in. There's still a battle to fight out there. And thanks be to God, you are our victorious warrior. One of my spiritual parents in my life used to say it like this. We don't, op, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory because he's already victorious. Will you come tonight on the count of three as the worship team gets ready? Will you ask the Holy Spirit to make you into a weapon that's fitting for his hand? And will you ask him tonight to raise you up as a blacksmith that will invest in somebody else and pound out the imperfections in them. That's my heart for you, and that's my word for you tonight. We are in a day that we need more blacksmiths in the land. Amen. I want you to close your eyes and lift your hands for a moment. We're just going to pray. We're going to wait on the Lord. Father, we love you tonight. Oh, raise us up, Jesus. 
We give you glory tonight, Jesus. We magnify you tonight, Jesus. This is fire on the altar conference. You want to come down and consume some things on the inside of us. You want to convict us. You want to rough, uh, work the rough edges out on, on us and smooth us out and sharpen us. We give you permission tonight. You want to fill us up tonight, Jesus. We give you permission tonight. You want to love on us. We give you permission tonight. You want to set us free. We give you permission tonight. We give you permission to poke the fire on the inside of us. We give you permission to throw another log on it that we would lay in your presence. We give you permission tonight uh, to fan the flame in us that it would breathe new life again, that we would never quench your spirit. So on the count of three, I want you to come, church, teenager, young adult, seasoned saint, parent, mom, dad, grandma, aunt, uncle, whatever. I want you to come. I want you to find a place at this altar. I want you to find someone to pray with. On the count of three tonight, one, two, this is for everybody. You're coming tonight, one, two, three, come. Find a place at this altar. Oh, we want you to come. Let it blow and consume all of 
Fire. 
I'm done chasing lesser things So burn me like a fire a fire till all they see and all they see is you burn me like a fire burn me like a fire till all they see all they see is you Let's say this to him I'm done chasing less of things I'm done chasing less of things God, all I want is all that you want for me. It's all, it's all just you, just you, just you, just you. I'm done chasing lesser things, God. I want all you want for me. And all I want, all I want is you.
what you want to do Do what you want to do Take what you want to take Take what you want to take. If there's something that doesn't belong, take it, Lord. Do what you want to do. Take what you want to take. Till I get to what you want to do. Take what you want to take. Do what you want to do. Take what you want to take. Till I have the heartbeat of heaven. Do what you want to do. Take what you want to take. Raise up John the Baptist, Lord. Raise up John the Baptist. Who prepare the way, prepare the way of the Lord. Fill us with your spirit. So all 